the Golden State Warrior NBA superstar Steph Curry was named League MVP. Uh, there was a high school English teacher at an inner city school in California. His name was Matt, Matt Amaral. I believe I'm pronouncing that right. Matt Amaral. He wrote a surprising letter to uh, Curry on his blog, and this became national. Everybody know who I'm talking about when I say Stephen Curry? Do you, do you know Steph Curry? Okay. His blog was titled this. Here's why it became national news. It was titled this, Now that you're an MVP, please don't come visit my high school. And in the article, it's clear this guy is a huge NBA fan. He's a lifelong Golden State Warrior fan. That's where his school is. It's, in, it's, in, uh, it's outside of uh, Oakland. And, and, and it's clear that he absolutely loves Steph Curry, which is part of what made this letter so surprising. But I want you to listen to why he doesn't want Steph Curry to visit the school. In fact, I'm going to put it up on the screen. It's kind of long. In fact, the guys in the back that do my notes were complaining about it this morning, how long it is. But I think you're going to be fascinated with it. Here it is. You can, you can read it along with me. He says, if you come to my school, you'll, you'll be your usual inspiring, humble, hilarious, kind self. And you'll say all the right things. But the reason I don't want you, don't want you to come has to do with what you won't say. You won't say that your father, Del Curry, was an NBA great just like you are. And since the day you were born, you had a professional one-on-one tutor who helped you hone your skills on a daily basis. You also won't mention that along with your father's success came all the monetary rewards none of my students have, like three square meals a day, a full-size court and hoop in the backyard, a sense of safety, a mother and a father, top schools, top peers, community resources. I know you might not think of it like this, he says, but you might as well come from another planet. You won't talk about the fact that you won the genetic lottery in addition to the monetary one. The worst thing you won't tell them, Steph, is that they can't do it, that they can't do it. You see, Steph, once you leave my school, the boys here aren't going to run home and finish that essay, which is the one thing they could do about their future that is in their control. If you ask the boys on my campus what they're going to be when they get older, the answer will involve a sport. They will claim they're going to play in the NBA or NFL. And seeing you there will make them think that they can actually do it. When I tell my students they're not going to be professional athletes, they like to say, won't you feel stupid if one of your students does go pro? And my answer is always the same, no, because even if they do, that means I'll still be 99% right. Right now, I'm 1,000 for 1,000. Steph, you and I know they have a better chance of winning the lottery, but no one seems to tell them these things but me. Kind of a remarkable letter, isn't it? This morning, we're going to start a new series. Uh, it's going to take us all the way up to Easter, and the series is a study on the letter in the New Testament to the Galatians. It seems like a long time to study one letter, doesn't it? Trust me, this, this, this letter is important enough and powerful enough that we need to take at least that much time to study. In fact, uh, Galatians is so powerful that if you were to go back and look into the history of Western culture, you would find that this one letter, the book of the letter of, to the Galatians, changed the face of Western culture. If you have a Bible with you uh, this morning, if you would, turn with me in it to the book of Galatians uh, in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, uh, you, can bring, you can use one. Uh, there's some Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. Just pull it out and uh, turn to Galatians chapter 1. You feel free to borrow it. Um, while you're turning there, to Galatians 1, I want you to think for just a moment about that letter uh, to Steph Curry. Uh, what was it that that guy was concerned about, really? It wasn't just Steph Curry. It was about the things that Steph Curry would say to the kids, what he wouldn't say to the kids. I'll say it this way, here, and I think it's going to surprise some of you. I think what he was concerned about 
was that his kids would get exposed to, and again, this is going to surprise you, but what he was concerned about is that his kids would get exposed to false doctrine. Doctrine? What are you talking about? Doctrine? Wasn't he, he wasn't concerned about doctrine. Oh, yes. I mean, he was very much so. He was concerned that his kids would walk away believing. There's the key word. Believing. What was he concerned they would believe? He was concerned that they would believe that they could make it to the NBA if they just worked hard enough at it. If they'd commit themselves to it, if they'd practice hard, they could make it to the NBA. He was concerned that they would believe that, and along the way, they would neglect the important things that could help them in the future the most. That's what doctrine is, you see. It's just beliefs. Doctrine is just a set of beliefs that you choose to live by, and everyone has beliefs. Even people who claim not to have faith, everyone has beliefs that they live by. And it's very serious stuff. The beliefs that you live by, your own personal doctrine, it's very serious stuff because what you believe dictates who you become, how you view other people, how you live. If someone comes along and gives you false beliefs, if they warp your beliefs about life in some way, it will warp your life. It's serious stuff. Why did the Nazis kill 6 million Jews? Why? It's because they believed that the Jewish people were subhuman. Why do some of us in the room get so discouraged when we face rejection or failure? It's a belief. It's because you believe that rejection and failure dictate your worth. That's what doctrine is. It's what you believe. Everyone has doctrine, and it's serious stuff because it affects how you live, what you become, who you become, how you view other people. Well, the writer of this letter to the Galatians is doing what the teacher that wrote to Steph Curry was doing for his students. The, letter of this, the writer of this letter is writing to protect people that he knew and cared about from false doctrine. And what I want to do is I want to start by reading from the middle of this first passage that we're going to look at this week. And we'll go back to the very beginning in just a moment. But let me just give you, let me just, let me just help you see what I mean when, he say, when I say that he's writing about false doctrine uh, to people that he cares about. Look at verse 6. He says, I'm astonished that you, these people to whom he's writing, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Now, the thing that you have to understand about letters in the New Testament is that they all have a purpose. Just like that guy's letter to Steph Curry. They all have a purpose. They're not just some random collection of thoughts. They're not just theological treatises. They all have a very personal story behind them, a context. And the story behind this letter is that some people had infiltrated a group of churches that the Apostle Paul had started in a place called Galatia, an area that we know now today as modern Turkey. 
These people who had infiltrated these churches were openly questioning Paul's authority on what is and isn't right doctrine. And not only were they questioning his authority, they were teaching doctrine that was very different than what Paul taught. And as you can see from what he says in verse 6, the people in these churches were falling prey to it. Now, right away, you can see in these verses that Paul violates a very basic principle of our postmodern culture, right? Because what he says, he says in the strongest possible terms that these infiltrators are wrong about their doctrine. In fact, he he says more than just that they're wrong about their beliefs. He says in verse 7 that they're perverting the gospel. And in verse 8, he says, let them be under God's curse, which literally means let them be eternally condemned. Now, that's some strong medicine. Like, those are strong words. And you see, in our culture, people would say, well, that's arrogant. That's intolerant. You should never correct other people's religious beliefs. You can't do that because that's imposing your religious beliefs on someone else. And you can't impose your religious beliefs on someone else because all moral and religious beliefs are equally valid. Which, by the way, that's a belief in and of itself. But is it a true belief? Is it a true belief that all beliefs are equally valid? What would you say to that? Are all beliefs equally valid? We'll come back to that question in a moment. But Paul says here, no. All doctrines are not equally valid. There are doctrines that are right and good, and there are doctrines that are wrong and dangerous and destructive. And the specific doctrine at hand is very clear from these verses. It's the doctrine of the gospel. In other words, what constitutes the gospel? You can't miss that this is what he's concerned about because he refers to the gospel six times in verses six through nine alone. He just keeps referring to, keeps saying the gospel, the gospel, gospel. Paul says that these infiltrators are teaching a different gospel than he's been teaching, which he says isn't really a gospel at all. Now, let me just tell you, let me just give you uh, in brief the two gospels that were at play in Galatia. I want to give you, first of all, the the gospel that Paul taught. And some of you have, uh, if you've been here for a while, you've seen me use this this phrase, this expression before. Paul taught these people in these churches from the very beginning that the gospel was this. Believe, believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in what Jesus Christ, in his life, his death, on the cross, his resurrection. Believe in Jesus and you're saved. Therefore, as a result of being saved, obey. Now, notice now that's very important. Paul is saying that good works, morality, being a good person, obeying the Ten Commandments, none of that, Paul says, none of that has anything to do with salvation or finding acceptance before God. None of that has anything to do with being accepted by God. Jesus, Jesus Christ's life and death on the cross did everything that needs to be done to secure your salvation. Okay? Obedience happens, Paul says, as a response to God's acceptance, not as a means to it. Okay, that's what Paul's saying. The infiltrators were teaching something very different. They were saying, no, 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 no. Good works, morality, being a good person, obeying the Ten Commandments are absolutely necessary to get God's approval. And here's what they were teaching. You can see it on the screen. They were teaching, believe, yeah, believe in Jesus Christ. That's good. That's fine. 
But you got to obey too if you're going to be saved. If you're going to get God's approval, you got to believe, but you got to obey too. Believing in Christ is not enough. You got to clean your act up on the front end to be accepted by, by God. Now, listen, these two beliefs, these two gospels, like they may look similar because they use the same words, but they're extremely different and they will produce very different outcomes in a person's life. Like this isn't just some esoteric theological debate that has no real repercussions, like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. That's not what this is. Paul argues throughout this, this letter of Galatians that if you don't understand the gospel, it will have a catastrophic effect on your Christian experience. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did you just hear what I said? Did you hear what I just said? If you don't understand the gospel, it will have a catastrophic effect on your Christian experience. And some of you are thinking, wait a minute, that's not what you mean. You mean salvation experience. Isn't the gospel just about how you initiate a relationship with God by believing in Jesus? Isn't that, isn't that what you mean? No, 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 no. That is not true. That would be incorrect. I really do mean Christian experience. This letter, you may have noticed, is written to Christians. The thing that many people don't understand is that the gospel isn't just the basis for how a person starts a relationship with God. It is the basis for how you live every single day of your life after you've become a Christian. Paul is teaching that your ongoing relationship with God after you've come under the cross by faith is still completely based on Christ's performance, not yours. And he says, if you get the gospel wrong, if you believe what the infiltrators are teaching, believe plus obey equals salvation, if that's what you believe, he says, it will warp your life. It will warp your Christian experience. But if you understand the gospel correctly, if you understand what I'm teaching, believe equals salvation, therefore, obey. He says, the gospel, the power of the gospel is explosive and it will completely change your experience of life. This is why Paul is speaking in such strong terms, using words like perversion and let them be eternally condemned. He's saying that all doctrines are not equally valid. Some are good and life-changing. Some are bad and life-warping. But but even as, as we say that, that brings up a really important question. Are you thinking of the question? Here, here's the question. It brings up this really important question. How do we know right doctrine when we see it? Like, how do you know who was right in this debate about the gospel? How do we know Paul was right? How do we know the false teachers, these infiltrators? How do we know they were wrong? I mean, anyone can say that their beliefs, their doctrine is right, and your beliefs, your doctrine is wrong. But on what basis can anybody say that? Philosophy is a big word for this. It's like one of those, what do they call it? It's like a $50 word. You know, it's one of those big words. It's the word epistemology. It's an important word, but you don't have to remember the word. It's, but it's an important concept. It's an important concept. It's actually very important. It just means this. How do you know that what you believe to be true what you believe to be right is true, is right. How do you know? Well, Paul argues, I'm going to show it to you. Paul argues that right doctrine has two authenticators, both of which have to be kept together or your epistemology falls apart. 
And I want to show you what these are. The first is, he says that the first authenticator of right doctrine is that right doctrine has the authority of God behind it. Like the authority of God as opposed to man's opinion. As opposed to your opinion or my opinion or anybody else's opinion. It has the authority of God behind it. Let's go back to verse 1. Notice that in verse 1, Paul comes right out of the gate, pointing to the authority behind his message. He does this because, of course, these infiltrators are challenging his authority, his credibility. And so he comes right out of the gate, and he says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle, he says, apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Then skip down, if you will, to verses uh, 10. And, And he keeps repeating this theme here. He says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Paul wants them to know he didn't just stroll out from behind the produce section of Schnooks one day and start preaching. Like, he didn't just start reading something on the internet and then just go preach. He didn't just navel gaze and decide he should be a preacher. He uses the word apostle to describe himself, and he actually uses this as a very technical term. The word apostle just meant sent one, but but when Paul uses it, he uses it to refer to a select group of people. And here's, here's how you know if you were apostle. You saw the risen Jesus in person, and you'd been commissioned by the risen Jesus Christ in person. That's why he refers here to Jesus being raised from the dead. Now, see, there are no apostles today. Like, I'm not an apostle. Uh, I know that there are other people, other pastors that call themselves apostles. They're not real apostles, not in the way that Paul is using the word apostle. Because an apostle was someone who had seen the the risen Lord Jesus Christ and been commissioned by him. No one today has had that experience. So Paul says that the authority behind his message, his doctrine, his gospel, isn't just him. It's not any other mere man. And he repeats that over and over in these verses. No man, he says, he says, no man gave it to me. I didn't get it from a man, not by a man. I'm not trying to please man. It's not of human origin. I wasn't taught this doctrine from, uh, of the gospel from a man. It came by revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. And the right doctrine has the authority of God behind it. It's not just for mere man. But let's be honest about this. I mean, seriously. Come on, still, how do we know? Because any religious leader can claim that his doctrine is authoritative. Because every religious leader worth his salt claims to have had an encounter with God and that his message came straight from God. Right? Every founder of every religion claims that. Joseph Smith claimed that the angel Moroni appeared to, appeared to him. Uh, Muhammad says that the angel Gabriel appeared to him. L. Ron Hubbard had a near-death religious experience that started Scientology. They all claim this. How do we know that Paul's any better than anyone else? Well, Paul recognizes that this is a problem. So back in verse 9, you know, we saw it. He, he, he said, he comes down really hard on these infiltrators, and he says, let them be eternally condemned, he says. But notice something. Just before he said that, notice that he said the same thing about himself. Here's what he said. He said in verse 8, even if we, me, the people that are with me, or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let them be 
under God's curse. He's including himself here. And he's saying two things here. Yes, right doctrine has the authority of God behind it. But he's saying, first, don't just take my word on any of this. Like, don't just take my word on the authority behind me. Don't take the word of any of the people who are with me. Even if I came to you and started preaching the gospel, something other than than the gospel that I have preached to you, I would be wrong. So don't just take my word on it. And then second, he says, "Don't, don't trust my religious experience. Like, don't trust the experience that I say I have. He says, look, even if an angel came down and spoke to you personally, and there were other people, let's say, who heard the angel speak to you, and they saw the angel, and, and the angel said to everybody there, I want to be your pastor, uh, and here's the gospel. It's not what Paul's teaching. It's this, believe plus obey, and you're saved. He says, even if an angel came down and said that, that's the gospel they infiltrated. Even if an angel came down and said that, don't trust anyone's religious experience. Like, don't trust yours, don't trust anybody, don't trust mine, don't trust anybody's religious experience about the doctrine of the gospel. Now, why? Why would he say that? Why can't you trust religious experience? Because, look, religious experience is subjective. One guy says, I had this experience, and someone else says, so what, I had this experience. I think I've told you guys before, there was a book written a number of years ago. It was called The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. It was a mental institution in Ypsilanti, Michigan, and there were three guys in this mental institution, all of whom believed that they were the Messiah. And the, the people who ran this mental institution thought, well, let's, you know, let's do something. Let's put all of these three messiahs in one room together, and let's see if they finally convince each other that they're not the Messiah. Well, it didn't work at all. You know why? Because the other guys would say about the other one, they'd say, or one guy would say about the other two, you can't trust them. They're in a mental asylum. <laughs> they're crazy. You, you can't trust religious experience. It's, it's very subjective. And so on the one hand, Paul says that that one of the authenticators of right doctrine is that it has the authority of God behind it. But he says, he says, you can't trust me, and you can't trust anyone else who said they had an experience with, with God or, or, or that they've received some message from God. And so you see, this is why I mentioned a moment ago that right doctrine has two authenticators that you have to keep together or your epistemology falls apart. One is the right authority, but here's the second. The second is the right Gospel, right doctrine proceeds out of the right gospel. Now, wait, wait. Because if you're thinking, you, you're probably thinking, thinking to yourself, well, that sounds like circular reasoning. Like, in order to be true, your doctrine has to have the right, have the right gospel, which, by the way, is my gospel. Well, that seems like circular reasoning. But watch this. Throughout these verses, Paul kept hammering home the content of his gospel. And here's why. Because he wants you to see that the uniqueness of his gospel authenticates that God, not man, is behind it. Okay, think of it like this. Think of it like this, because I know that's a little confusing. Think of it like this. Let's say you have a painting in your house that you got from your grandmother's house when she passed away. You've walked by this painting a thousand times, and you really thought nothing of it. But for some reason, this time you walk by it, and something about the painting catches your eye. And as you look at it, you think to yourself, oh my goodness, this is not just some ordinary painting. This 
is a Van Gogh. But so what that you think it's a Van Gogh? I mean, no one's paying you $100 million for, for a Van Gogh just because you think that this is a Van Gogh. So what do you do? Well, you take it to a big-name expert art authenticator. Her name, you get her name behind your belief that your painting is a Van Gogh. Her name will mean everything. But even with her name behind it, no one's putting $100 million down just because she says it's a Van Gogh. Like Maybe you bribed her. Maybe you paid her. Maybe she's just wrong. What's she going to have to do? What's the big name expert authenticator going to have to do? What's she going to have to do? Well, she's going to have to show to everyone the authenticating signs that are uniquely characteristic of a Van Gogh painting. She's going to have to show Van Gogh's, and I don't know what Van Gogh's unique characteristics are, but let's say she's going to have to show him like his unique, they're going to, she's going to have to show everybody his unique brush strokes, his unique use of light, let's say his unique structure, whatever the characteristics are that make a Van Gogh unique, she's going to have to show those things before anybody's going to believe even her. I mean, yes, she's a big name expert art authenticator, and that's really important. She's got authority behind her name, but she's going to have to show that she's right about this, that this is a Van Gogh. Well, in that illustration, Paul is the authenticator. Like, he's the apostle, he's the art authenticator. But he says, don't just take my word for it. He knows nobody's going to just take his word for it. So if you noticed, all through these first 12 verses, Paul points to the unique brush strokes of God in the gospel that he received and preaches. For instance, I'm just going to call some of these out for you. I'm going to show you these. For instance, in verse 3, Paul says, he says, grace to you. The gospel that Paul preaches is a gospel of God's grace to humanity. Do you realize that still today, after all of the centuries of human existence, there is still not a single religion in the history of humanity that is based on grace? Did you know that? Not one, except Christianity. Every religion demonstrates its human origin by being based in man's performance. Believe plus obey. That's man's performance equals you're saved. That's what every religion, name a religion other than Christianity, Mormonism, Islam, Buddhism, name it. They're all, they all say that. I mean, different, different words and codes and all that, but they all say the same thing. Believe plus obey and you'll be saved. Every man-made religion says it. Christianity is unique in its message is in that it says that acceptance by God has nothing to do with human performance. Uh, verse 4, verse 4. Besides grace, verse 4, substitution. Jesus gave himself for our sins. Now combine that with verses 1 and 12, where he's talking about resurrection. You realize that no religious leader has ever claimed to be able to be a substitute for human sins and then be resurrected from the dead to prove it. None. Only Jesus. Verse 4, notice this is another unique brushstroke of the gospel. Why did Jesus die? Paul says, to rescue us. You see, every other religion is about teaching you how to rescue yourself by being good or by obeying or achieving whatever the rules of that religion are. Here's the thing about every man-made religion. They're, they're all very optimistic about humanity. The thing that makes Christianity unique is that it's pessimistic about humanity's goodness. 
Like it is. Every other religion says, it says every other religion says its leader comes to teach you how to be good, how to follow the rules. You can do that. Paul says Christ didn't come to teach you, he came to rescue you. Now listen, people who, people who can save themselves don't need to be rescued. That's why Christ had to die for you, to rescue you. That's unique. That's a unique brushstroke of the gospel. Verse 4, God's initiative. God's initiative. Now I know that he doesn't, he doesn't actually use God's initiative. He doesn't use those words. But, but notice this. Watch what happens. It says Jesus gave himself to rescue us according to the will of of our God and Father. Notice Jesus is doing everything here. The gospel is unique in that it says that Christ took the initiative to save us. You and I, our initiative isn't mentioned anywhere here. Verse 6, relationship. Another unique brushstroke of the gospel. Paul says, you're deserting the one. Some translations read him. You're deserting him who called you. Christianity, unlike other religions, is a relationship with a person. It's not a philosophy. It's not merely about a set of beliefs. It's not an inanimate object. You hear people all the time talk about, the universe did this for me. The universe did Christianity is not an inanimate object. Christianity is a relationship with a real person, Jesus Christ. That's a unique brushstroke. Here's another one, verse 6. Power. Power. He says, you're deserting him or the one who called you who called you. How many of you have children or grandchildren? Raise your hands. How many of you have children or grandchildren? Okay. How many of you have called your kids to dinner or to clean up their room? Did it work? How many of you did it work? No. What happens? Well, they're always like, I'll come in a minute. I'll do it later. Whatever. How many wives have called their husbands to fix something in the house that didn't get fixed? It doesn't work, right? And you know why? Because your calling has no power. I mean, you can call, but it has no power. But when God calls you into a relationship with him, you end up in a relationship with him because his calling has the power to bring you, to change you. In every other religion, it's up to you to bring yourself to God. In Christianity, God calls you to him. He does. And finally, let me give you another brushstroke, unique brushstroke of Christianity, verse 3. Peace. Peace. Paul says, grace and peace to you. Only Christianity, only in the gospel can you have peace. Why is that? Why can you have peace with God only in Christianity? Because in the gospel, in Christianity, your moral performance has nothing to do with the basis of your relationship with God. It is all about Jesus and what he did. And that takes you off the roller coaster of your inconsistent performance and the anxiety and the guilt and the fear and the shame that comes with human religion. When have you done enough in human religion? Because you could have always done more. See, that always haunts you in man-made religion. Believe plus obey, it says. When have you obeyed enough? When have you done enough? See, there's guilt, there's anxiety, there's fear, there's shame in that, and there's There's no good news in that at all. And that's what the gospel means, by the way, is good news. This is why Paul says that the gospel that the false teachers are teaching is not a gospel at all. It's not good news. It's a perversion of the gospel that will warp a person's life. All man-made religion is the same in that human 
Performance is a part of your salvation. Now, you need to understand, why is it always the same in human religion? Why is that unique with Christianity? Why is it always the same in human religion, that performance is always about human religion? Why why does human religion always include performance? It's because that's instinctive for us. It's what we naturally move toward. We've got to perform. And this is why the Galatians have abandoned the gospel of grace so quickly. Because the gospel of works is so instinctive to human being. Christianity is so unique, Paul says, that it could only have come from God. Two authenticators to right doctrine. One, it has the authority of God behind it. But two, it proceeds out of the right gospel, which is a gospel of grace. Now, i got to wrap up. That's what you're thinking to yourself, aren't you? Look at the time. He's got to wrap up. Okay. Two things. Two two ways I want to wrap up first. Those of you who are believers in Christ this morning, do you understand the gospel? You'll know if you understand the gospel because peace will be your experience. The gospel always leads to peace. And if peace isn't what you're experiencing, it's because you have added performance as the basis for your relationship with God. You are on the roller coaster of your inconsistent performance and God's love, God's hatred. God's love, God's hatred. God's love, God's hatred. If that's what you're experiencing, there's no peace in that. If that's what you're experiencing, you don't understand the gospel. You've added human performance. You're believing the gospel of the infiltrators here in the, book of, in the letter of Galatians. That's man-made religion. That's your instinct, by the way. That's why you always move back toward it. That's what you're believing. You need to go back and remind yourself that your performance doesn't gain you God's approval. That's what you need to do. If you're a Christian and, you, and you're not experiencing peace, you need to go back and preach the gospel to yourself again and again and again. Not, not so that you'll be saved. I don't mean that. Because you're already saved. If you've believed in Christ, you're already saved. Believe equals salvation, therefore obey. No, you need to preach the gospel to yourself over and over again so that you could experience the peace of the gospel. Okay? Second, this is for everyone here. I'm going to come back to the question that I asked earlier. Do you believe that all beliefs are equally valid? Let me give you, let me give you an example. For instance... Was the Nazis' belief that Jewish people were subhuman, was that belief equally valid with the belief that all people from every ethnicity carry equal dignity before God? Are those two beliefs equally valid? Or let me give you another one. Is the belief that women are inferior to men and that they should be kept barefoot, pregnant, and in the kitchen, is that equally valid with the belief that women are equally valuable as men? Are those two things equally valid? Do you believe that? And if you would say no, let me ask you, which beliefs are right? How do you determine that? Because listen, the thing that Paul wants you to understand is that human opinion just isn't helpful in distinguishing these things. If you point to science, for example... 
If you said, well, let me, let me, you know, I'm going to show that human beings are valuable because science tells us that. Well, science actually tells you that some people are weaker than others and inferior than others, and they need to be eradicated. That's what evolution says. It says you, out of the gene pool, you're weak. That's what the Nazis believed. Science doesn't help you in making those decisions. Maybe you would say, well, well okay, but the, I, I, the majority of people believe the Nazis were wrong. The majority of people believe that women are equal to... Well, but if you point to the majority, you're just claiming power is the adjudicator of right and wrong. But isn't that, doesn't feminism say that's the problem with the world? That men have been in power all this time and that the power of the patriarchy is what's wrong with the world? Power doesn't get you anywhere. And if you say, well, okay, look, I just feel that one is right and one is wrong. Well, so what? Some people feel differently. When you appeal to your feelings, all you're doing is you're just saying your feelings are better than mine. That's it. Paul wants you to understand you need a divine authority behind your beliefs or your beliefs are worthless. And the proof of divine authority, Paul says, is that divine authority says that the cross of Christ is the way to salvation. And if your authority says anything else other than the cross of Christ is the only way to salvation, your authority is wrong. Only the Bible, of all the religious books in the world, says that Christ and Christ alone is the way to salvation, the way to approval before God. Only the Bible says this. And here's my point to you. Maybe it's time you actually read it. Would you bow with me for prayer? For those that are here this morning, Lord Jesus Christ, that have never understood this reality, that belief in you and you alone, not not our goodness, not our morality, not our ability to clean up our lives, not our obedience, none of those things have anything to do with approval before you and salvation. Lord Jesus, only you, only what you've done for us matters. And for those who don't understand that, that maybe this is the first time they've heard it, I pray, Lord, that today something would click in them, and that they would come to believe that, and that they would own that. And Lord, that as a result, you would begin now to transform them, that you, your very life, your spirit would enter into their souls, and that you would begin now to transform them. And then, Lord, for all of us, Lord, would you drive us back to your truth, to your authority for what we believe? Because, Lord, people people are always trying to take their experiences and their feelings, and they're trying to make those into universal principles about how life works. But, Lord, only your truth, only your scriptures tells us what is true and what is not, and it matters so deeply what we believe. Drive us back there, Lord. And we thank you for this letter to the Galatians. It's power. We pray that you would use this in us over the coming weeks and months to change us as individual people, but to change us as a church as well. Let us experience the power of the gospel. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray. Amen.